Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. How are sunspots born? What does a black hole collision look like? And how long does it take to make a full-size galaxy? This month on Naked Astronomy, we'll find out why people searching for pulsars might spot colliding black holes in their data, how galaxies may form quicker than predicted, and where in the sun sunspots first arise. Plus, news from Gravity Probe B, why there's no more space on the moon for craters, and how as many as half of all hot Jupiters may be orbiting the wrong way. I'm Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. It's been a little while since we caught up with Carolyn, Andrew and Dominic for a roundup of science news. So first we joined Carolyn Crawford for the results of Gravity Probe B. Well, the thing I've picked up and has already been mentioned in a lot of the media and press, but it's such an exciting result. And that's the final result from a mission called Gravity Probe B, which was a satellite. It was a very ambitious project that was based around a satellite launched about seven years ago. And the idea behind it was to test some predictions of Einstein's theory of general relativity. And you have this little satellite and it orbits the Earth about 640 kilometres above the surface. And contained within the satellite, you have a telescope and you've got four small gyroscopes. And at the start of the mission, the telescope and the gyroscopes are all completely aligned with a distant star. And then the satellite goes away and it orbits the Earth from pole to pole for about 50 weeks, so just short of a year. And then they compare the alignment of the gyroscopes with the alignment of the telescope, which is being kept pointing at the star. And what they're looking to measure is a gradual drift of the gyroscope axis from the original alignment. And you might expect this for two reasons, and they're both connected with the ideas of general relativity. The first is uh, what we call a geodesic effect. It's due to the way that mass curves space and time around it. And this would affect um, the alignment of the gyroscopes in one direction. Now, this effect is absolutely tiny, but it has been detected, and, and that was the first result from Gravity Probe B. But in a completely perpendicular direction, there should be another slight drift of the gyroscopes and due to a much smaller effect, which, again, comes from general relativity, but it's the idea that if the Earth is rotating, there is this, this process, we call it frame dragging, where it actually drags and twists the space-time around with it. Now, the Earth is rotating fairly slowly, so, as I say, this is an absolutely minuscule effect, this, this drift that they're looking for after 50 weeks. And this was the result that's been so hard to pull out of the data. And there have been very systematic effects they've had to get rid of, but they're finally, after seven years, they've decided that they have finally got this signal and can confirm this second prediction from Einstein's general relativity. So it's just, it's a nice finishing line to a very ambitious experiment. It's been successful in both scores. And 
just to, I, I really like this kind of project because it's this, this idea of continual refinement and testing of the laws of physics. And I also like it because it's one of these experiments you can only really do if you go out into space. And, you know, for an astronomer, that's always a nice thought. Those findings were released in a NASA announcement earlier this month and a paper has been accepted for publication in Physical Review Letters. Andrew Ponson has been looking at the planets that orbit the wrong way. Well, in our solar system, all the orbits seem to go in the same direction. So what I mean by that is if you went and stood on the south pole of the Earth and then you flew in a spaceship directly away from the Earth out into space and looked back at the solar system from where you'd got to, you would see um, that the Earth was moving, from your perspective, clockwise around the Sun. And you'd also see that the Earth was rotating on its own axis in a clockwise sense. And if you looked at all the other planets, you'd also see that they were rotating clockwise uh, around the Sun. Um, and the sun, in fact, also rotates about its own axis in that same sense. So, again, that would look like it's rotating clockwise from where you'd got to. Now, that does kind of make good sense uh, from, uh, from physics because uh, there's something in physics called conservation of angular momentum, which basically means that when you set something spinning in a certain direction, it'll carry on spinning in that same direction forever unless something comes along to really knock it uh, into spinning in the other direction. And we do think that uh, all of the planets in the solar system and the sun itself were originally formed out of a kind of spinning cloud of gas and dust. So they've just picked up that same spin that the original clouds had uh, and there's no way for them particularly to get rid of it. But it, it turns out that that picture can't be quite as simple as, as we thought it was because in 2009 an exoplanet, a planet outside our own solar system, was discovered that orbited around its own star in the opposite direction from the direction in which the star itself was spinning. So it, exactly opposite from what we'd expect from the, the physical arguments I was just giving you. And now it seems that possibly up to a half of all the uh, detected exoplanets of a particular type known as hot Jupiters, so they're big planets that are orbiting quite close to, to their uh, parent star. So up to a half of those seem to orbit either... Uh, in uh, a plane that's just not related to the way that the parent star is spinning, or uh, they're actually orbiting backwards compared to the, the way that the parent star is spinning. So this doesn't fit in with these simple uh, ideas we had about the way that uh, planets and stars form in the past. So uh, what we've heard this month is uh, news from an Illinois group who've been developing detailed computer modelling of the way that systems of planets and stars can evolve. And what they've been able to show is that if the uh, system has not just a star and one of these hot Jupiters, but if it instead also has uh, a second big uh, planet, so a second planet of the mass of Jupiter, um, which is perhaps considerably further away from the parent star than the, than the Jupiter that we've actually detected. These can interact in a really counterintuitive way, in such a way that they do end up kind of making the orbits of the uh, innermost planet change its direction or even reverse its direction uh, completely. So 
It seems that the, the dynamics of the way that uh, solar systems live out their lives are actually much more complicated than people would have thought maybe 10 years ago. And it, it may have implications for how common a relatively stable solar system like our own uh, really is. But uh, it's hard to say at the moment because these hot Jupiters that so many planetary missions are detecting that seem to be orbiting backwards are a very particular type of planetary system that happens to be easy to detect. You can detect a big planet that orbits close to its parent star. So it may be that those are the odd ones out, and at the moment we just don't really know. And that paper was published in the 12th of May edition of the journal Nature. Next, Dominic Ford has been looking to the moon. Well, this is a paper that I spotted in the Journal of Geophysical Research, which analyses data from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And what it does is to show the connections between the topology of the surface of the Moon with the history of the meteor impacts on the Moon and the geological process that has then gone on to shape those craters. Now, it's quite a well-established idea that you can look at craters in order to date how old a piece of surface of a planet is because the model is that new rock is formed from volcanoes and as the rock solidifies, it forms a flat surface, and then meteors will come in and impact that surface, and because small meteors are much more frequent than larger meteors, you'll first of all get sort of small pot marks across the surface, and then as it becomes really very old, you'll start to have larger impacts and larger craters on that surface. But the problem with simply looking at craters is that that's quite subjective, because most of the craters are really small things that you can hardly see. And so when does a bump become a crater? So the technique used in this paper is to look at points separated by, let's say, a mile, and to say what is the average difference in height between points on the Moon a mile apart. And if you've got a large crater, you have a large difference in height. But if you've only got small craters, those will average out and you have quite small height differences over distances of a mile. And you can then repeat this with different lengths of ruler and see how much structure there is on the moon on different kinds of length scales. And they've actually produced colour maps of the structure of the moon on these different scales. And they're really fascinating to look at. They're really quite visually compelling. That I think the conclusions that you can draw from this are probably not that surprising in that the lunar seas are quite young, they're quite flat, well, that's fairly clear. And the lunar highlands, we know, are much older structures with many more craters. Um, But what was perhaps really surprising was quite how rough the lunar highlands are. They've got craters on all different scales, and they're almost a fractal, so that if you look very close in, you see as many craters as you see if you look much further out at these highlands. And that suggests there really has been no weathering of those craters at all, and the surface is completely saturated with craters. So you couldn't actually create more craters on that surface without erasing the old craters. So this is quite a neat technique, and it's produced some really quite compelling maps of the Moon. And you can find that research along with its incredible images in the Journal of Geophysical Research. Back to Andrew now with galactic gas. Well, this is about a a detection of molecular gas racing away from galaxies that's been made with the, the Herschel Space Telescope. Now, it's been known for decades that 
galaxies, um, that's these collections of, of billions of stars, have what we call winds. And that's just gas that is being expelled from those, those galaxies, often very violently. And if you want to, to throw a lot of gas out of a galaxy, you need a lot of energy to, to do that. And that energy uh, is thought to come from uh, either supernovae, that's the, the explosions at the, the end of the lives of massive stars, or from energy released when black holes uh, eat up matter around them. Now, it's, it's thought to be a really important process, the fact that these galaxies have winds, removes gas, which might otherwise form into new stars. And so, so what this removal of gas does is it kind of stops the formation of stars in its tracks um, and kind of regularises the way that galaxies can turn gas into stars. Um, but it's, the process as a whole is still actually rather mysterious. We don't have a good theoretical understanding of exactly how and why these outflows of, of gas get set up uh, and how the gas gets accelerated to really large speeds and, and how it gets out of the galaxies. And these new observations by the Herschel Space Telescope only really add to the mystery because what they're seeing is molecules of gas racing away from these galaxies at something like a thousand kilometres per second. That's something like two million miles per hour. And the thing is that molecules, although the, the gas around us in Earth's atmosphere is made out of molecules, um, molecules are actually very fragile. And if you hit them hard enough, then they tend to uh, disassociate into individual atoms, which are uh, the much more basic building blocks of matter. So there's a real question about how you can take these gases which are made out of molecules and get them accelerated up to a thousand kilometers per second and yet not have uh, actually hit them hard enough to uh, turn the molecules back into atoms. So this could be a really important clue to what's going on in, in setting up these outflows and at the moment to be honest we need every clue that we can get. And we'll hopefully be getting more clues as the Herschel Shining project continues to grab spectral data for more and more galaxies. Finally, and back in our own cosmic backyard, Carolyn highlights the interesting volcanic activity on one of Jupiter's moons. So I was just going to return back to our solar system for the last news story, and this concerns one of the moons of Jupiter known as Io. When the Voyager spacecraft flew past it for the first time in 1979, it showed that unlike a lot of the other moons out in the outer solar system, which are made of a combination of ice and rock, Io is a highly volcanic body. And detailed looks at the surface show that it's, it's covered with, it's something like 400 volcanoes, all leaking out gases, liquid lava flows. And in fact, I read a statistic saying it produces about 100 times more lava each year than all the volcanoes on Earth put together. And yet this is a much smaller body in that it's only a moon of Jupiter and not as large as the Earth. And the... Curious thing about this is that Io is obviously hot at the core. It's the moon that orbits closest to the giant planet Jupiter and the effect of Jupiter's gravity squeezes and stretches the moon as it goes around at its orbit and it keeps the core of the planet very warm. So one of the other things about Io being quite so close to Jupiter is it actually encounters a lot of Jupiter's strong magnetic field. It's kind of 
orbiting through this magnetic field and as Io goes through you'd expect changes according to where it is in Jupiter's magnetic field because Jupiter's rotating very fast as well you get certain effects of the interaction between Io and Jupiter's magnetic field that you would predict but when the Galileo spacecraft flew past the the planet and its moons well in fact orbited around them in about 10-15 years ago it discovered that the magnetic field of Jupiter is all kind of distorted around Io in a way that you wouldn't expect. And nobody's really been able to explain this. What is interesting is that the result that's been out recently by Krishan Kuran and team from the University of California is where they're revisiting some of these magnetic field data around Io. And what's made it possible is a, an advance in mineral physics saying there's this type of rock, it's made mainly of magnesium and iron, that as soon as it's molten, it becomes hugely more electrically conductive. And so the idea is if you had this kind of molten rock under the surface of Io, that would be amazingly electrically conductive. It would strongly affect the magnetic field of the little satellite and it would allow it to shield the core and deflect some of Jupiter's magnetic field and could account for all the disturbances. So you start off with this magnetic anomaly in the data and from this you can then infer there's this enormous ocean of liquid rock right under the surface of Io so there may be a crust of about 20-30 miles and then underneath that for at least 30 miles deep if not more a liquid ocean of molten rock at about sort of 1200 degrees C and this can account for some of the other strange things about the volcanoes on Io for example they're distributed all over the little moon Unlike on the surface of the Earth, where they're lined along tectonic plates, they're all over the surface of Io. So it seems anywhere over the surface of this little moon, it can tap into that huge ocean of magma to produce volcanoes. And that work was published in the journal Science earlier this month. Carolyn, Andrew and Dominic will be back soon with Fact Impact, a high-speed rundown of facts about Mars, and to take on your science questions. But first... Pulsars are the remnants of stars which rapidly rotate and produce distinctive pulses of radio emission. Researchers are looking for these telltale repeating patterns in huge swathes of data and sometimes encounter something unexpected. I spoke to Evan Keane from the Max Planck Institute in Bonn in Germany. Well, I've been involved in uh, surveys to search for pulsars in order to answer a number of questions. One, which is quite important, is how many pulsars there are in the galaxy. For astronomers, we study stars. It's quite important for us to know how many there are. And pulsars are very extreme stars. What are you looking for? What are the signatures? We use very big telescopes, like the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell Bank. We collect uh, large volumes of data by regular human standards. For instance, uh, surveys I've searched, which would be considered small, would be uh, several terabytes of data you have to search for. And now we're talking about petabytes, so that's a million gigabytes. I mean, we're looking for needles in a very large haystack, basically. And a lot of the work goes into a very clever analysis of this data, trying to think of new tricks. So how many pulsars do we know of? Currently known, there's about 2,000 pulsars, give or take. But there should be a lot more than that. Usually they're, descri- they're described as being clock-like. So we're looking for a signal... Um, which repeats quite regularly. And there are quite a lot of data analysis techniques we can use to tune into these, anything that's periodic like that, we can find that. 
there's a lot of research uh, using these guys as very accurate clocks. And super clocks in space are ideal tools we can use for a lot of experiments. And that's one thing I'm interested in. One thing I've been working on recently is uh, those pulsars that are not so reliable. So we get a pulse, and then they're quiet. They're off for, say, 100 pulses. So they're, they're mostly off. But sometimes when they're on, they, they're quite bright. I, I looked through a pulsar survey looking for these kind of objects because they don't come up in the standard analyses. And there's lots and lots of pulsar data that hasn't been searched for these kind of signals. In this search, I found one signal of particular interest. This was a single burst that lasted just 7 milliseconds, so not very long, and its inferred distance was quite far. In fact, it's outside the galaxy, which is the interesting thing about this. How do I know that when I hear one pulse? Well, when something, a pulsar or some source, emits some light and it comes towards us, it travels at the speed of light, but it actually is subject to a delay. So the light hits against stuff, stuff between us and the source, and that will slow it down. And as it turns out, uh, high-frequency emission arrives before the low-frequency emission. And the, if you measure this delay, you can work out how far it's come. And if you work it out for this particular source I found, you find that the delay is much longer than the maximum delay that could have happened from it coming through the ga in the entire galaxy. So the rest of the delay has to come from something beyond our galaxy. There are many theoretical papers of uh, sources that should do this. Annihilating black holes should give a burst like this. There's a beautiful paper from Martin Rees from 1977 where he predicts what an annihilating black hole will look like. And it looks just like this. And what physically do you think that signal is coming from? Is it an annihilating black hole or is it a pulsar that's only sent one very strong pulse so far? This depends crucially on how far away it is. We want to absolutely nail down the distance of this source. If we were to get up close to this source, we'd realise it was really, really bright. In fact, much too bright to be a pulsar. So if it's as far away as I'm telling you, it's not a pulsar. So what I've been trying to do is break the standard models of how far this is away. We think we understand how much stuff there is in our galaxy. And I've just been thinking, well, suppose we're wrong. We're totally wrong. And let's say it's a pulsar at the edge of our galaxy. This would mean it's a pulsar like the crab pulsar, which occasionally gives very loud, very strong bursts. Now, if this source were a pulsar, we would see many pulses from this. So this is why I was in Australia last week to use a telescope uh, there, the Parkes Radio Telescope, and uh, observe this guy for 10 hours. <laughs> 10 hours looking for some pulses. I haven't seen any, which is good. <laughs> Either result would have been good because seeing some pulses would tell us a model which we thought we understood to be correct is wrong, and that there's a weird pulsar at the edge of the galaxy. That's one scenario, which is interesting. Second scenario is one model that we thought was correct is correct, which isn't always nice, and that we've detected this extragalactic burst of quite significant interest. So what's your next step? What are you going to do to try and follow up that event? Well, there's nothing I can do. This signal happened 10 years ago. Pulsar people, they collect so much data that they can't analyse it because they want to plan ahead. That means there's this lag between when this actually happened and when it's, it was noticed in the data. In some sense, it's, it's inconclusive because I can only present there was this very strong burst. It seems to come from far away for all of these reasons. I can suggest that there is a high probability that it's something like this. 
But for the future, and I mean, these events should be much more common. I mean, if we can monitor the whole sky, we should be seeing these every day. But hopefully now in the, in the current generation, or the next generation of telescopes, we can uh, be more um, real-time, as much as is possible. We want to detect, I mean, people do it at other wavelengths in X-ray and gamma-ray telescopes. They send alerts to everyone on Earth saying something just went bang, everybody look there. And we want to do that. Evan Keane from the Max Planck Institute explaining why quick action is needed to study these very brief radio signals and possibly identify colliding black holes. But now it's time for this month's Fact Impact. This time we have all you need to know about Mars. Mars is the fourth planet from the Sun in the solar system. It lies just outside the orbit of the Earth. In the night sky it appears red, a similar colour to a rusty nail. In fact, a very similar colour. A major constituent of the Martian soil is iron oxide, which is better known as rust. Mars is the second smallest planet in the solar system at about half the size of Earth. And yet it plays host to what is the largest mountain in the solar system, a volcano known as Olympus Mons, which is three times higher than Mount Everest here on Earth. Its atmospheric pressure is less than one hundredth that of the Earth. That's equivalent to the pressure on Earth at an altitude of 100,000 feet. And at such low pressure, liquid water would evaporate almost immediately. So while there's plenty of water on Mars, it's all locked up in ice reservoirs beneath the surface. And what little air there is on Mars is mostly carbon dioxide, with barely a trace of breathable oxygen. At the poles, this gets so cold that it forms frost, Not made of ice, but made of solid carbon dioxide at minus 120 degrees C. So the surface of Mars is a harsh place. Moreover, with no magnetic field to deflect it, Mars's surface receives the full brunt of the ionising radiation emitted by the Sun. But it might not always have been that way. The surface of Mars shows signs of past water erosion. So it probably had a thicker atmosphere and a warmer climate in the past. It may have been much more habitable back then. Mars has two moons, Phobos and Deimos, named after the sons of Mars in Greek mythology. But they're much smaller moons than our own, measuring less than 25 kilometres across. They orbit so close to Mars that they're difficult to spot from Earth even with a sightable telescope. And it's quite a mystery where they come from. They may once have been asteroids that slipped into orbit around Mars. More spacecraft have been sent to study Mars than any other planet. The success rate has been low. Of 33 missions launched, only 15 have returned useful data. But the latest rovers to land on the Martian surface, Spirit and Opportunity, have lasted over six years, well beyond their 90-day design lifetime. This is Naked Astronomy with me, Ben Valsler. Still to come, we'll be finding out how a sunspot is born and answering your science questions. But before that, understanding how galaxies grow and evolve can help us to refine and perfect our models of the development of our universe. Claire Burke from Liverpool John Moores University. We were trying to compare observations of the most massive galaxies in the universe to the predictions from the standard cosmological models. So we're trying to find out how these galaxies evolve since fairly early on in the universe to now. So understanding how the build-up of the most massive objects, which is, you know, these big galaxies that live in galaxy clusters, and these are things that can tell us about the evolution of, you know, other galaxies in general, about where all the structure in the universe came from, because these things are the centre of the most massive structures in the universe... So it tells us about the evolution of the universe as well. What do we think is the process 
by which these massive galaxies actually form? These massive galaxies are thought to form by what's called hierarchical merging, which is where lots of little galaxies or proto-galaxies merge together to form a bigger galaxy. Then this is, this is something that is thought to have happened very slowly over a long period of time. However, our results are a bit in, a bit in contradiction to this idea. We've found that these most massive things, which should be assembling slowly over time, have actually built up really early and are already about as big as they are now, halfway back to the Big Bang. So this process of merging has happened very quickly, very early on in the universe, and not much has changed since then. So does this mean that essentially the, the big galaxies that we're seeing out there haven't changed at all in seven billion years? Effectively, it does. The only way they will have changed is that their stars, the stars that make them up, will have gotten older. Other than that, we're pretty much finding that they haven't changed in terms of their mass and how big they are since halfway back to the Big Bang. What data are you using to to work this out? Because obviously one of the problems with astronomy is that we don't have the opportunity to sit there for billions of years and watch galaxies evolve. We have to take snapshots from the past to try and piece together a timeline. What sets are you using? We've got two data sets, both from the Hubble Space Telescope. One is this distant set of galaxies that are halfway back to the Big Bang. We found, we've got this data out of the HST archive. It's got very long exposure time, so we can see a lot of detail. And we've got some images of the same kind of galaxies in the nearby universe. So we're comparing the two, one far away at an earlier time in the universe and one very nearby. What do you think that's told us? You said it seems to go against what we think is actually the process. Have you got an idea of what might be going on? We've got a couple of ideas of what we think might be going on that is in contradiction to these models. There's certainly been some merging going on, but it's just obviously happened more rapidly and more early than, was, than is predicted by these models. There is also an idea called cold stream accretion, where these massive cold streams of gas is funneled into the centres of these objects really quickly early on in the universe so that they can grow lots of mass together quickly without having to go through lots of mergers. What do we need to do now to confirm or, or refute these ideas? We are turning down the sizes of these things for some slightly nearer galaxies, so checking that, they, that our result is right for one, that they haven't changed in size since halfway back to the Big Bang. We're also looking at uh, how these things might have built up. Are they building up from the inside out or the outside in by looking at uh, the same galaxies at different wavelengths, so some optical and some infrared to see if we can see any evidence for merging that's happened in, the, in their recent past or if there's any kind of evidence of these streams still hanging around. So if there was a cold stream, you'd presumably see that in the infrared, but you wouldn't necessarily see it in the visible, so that's why we need to look at different frequencies. That's quite possible. Also, these cold streams, we expect, will have happened a lot earlier on in the universe, so we would need some data from, for further away galaxies which is it's pretty hard to do because they're so far away, they're quite faint. So that would be something that we would be looking to do with like the next generation of telescopes, ideally, like the James Webb Space Telescope or the ELT when that eventually gets built. That was Claire Burke from Liverpool John Moores University. 
Now, sunspots are dark, cool regions on the sun that we can see from the Earth. They're caused by changing magnetic fields, and although they're cooler than the surface around them, they can lead to enormous releases of energy in the solar atmosphere. Stefan Rainier from the University of Central Lancashire has been using a technique called helioseismology, looking at how vibrations are carried through the sun itself to find out how sunspots arise. The sunspots are a tracer of the activity on the sun, and what we want to understand is how the sunspots are emerging from below the surface of the sun into the corona which is the atmosphere of the sun at about one million degree. Are all sunspots caused by the same process, or is there a range of different types of sunspots? We think that there are different types of uh, emergence of sunspots. So you will see at the end the same structure of a sunspot, which is a very strong magnetic field, a very dark area, which is called the umbra, and then surrounded by the penumbra. But the formation of the sunspot can be different. A sunspot can emerge into a pre-existing active region or pre-existing sunspot region already, or it can emerge from a very quiet area where there is nothing at all at the beginning. So where do the the disturbances that lead to a sunspot actually come from? I think of them as something on the surface of the sun, but do they actually come from the core? Uh, We think that they're coming from below the surface, but not from the core. The structure of the sun is made of the core, which is the center part of the sun, and then there is the radiative part, and above that, the convective zone. And there's this uh, layer between the radiative zone and the convective zone, which produce a kind of dynamo generating the magnetic field. And this is where we think that the magnetic field or the plasma at the origin of the sunspot is generated and then this uh, material will rise from the bottom of the convection zone to the top of this convection zone which is the the surface of the sun. Does the the dark bit, the sunspot itself, consist of the same material as the rest of the sun but with different magnetic fields or is its actual consistency different from the rest of the sun? Uh, No, it's basically the same type of plasma, except, as you said, that there is a strong concentration of magnetic field, which makes the the plasma cooler and denser at this, this location. How are we able to study them? They're something that we can fairly easily see from the Earth, but if we're studying where they come from before they break through to the surface, what tools do we need to use? We cannot really observe the, uh, the sunspot formation below the surface of the sun. So what we have to use is, recently there are some new techniques about helioseismology, measuring how an acoustic wave can propagate from the convection zone into the, to, towards the surface. And then if you have a very strong magnetic field, then this acoustic wave will propagate at a different speed, showing that you can have the formation of a sunspot below the surface. And so using this technique, looking at the way that these acoustic waves actually travel through the sun, what have we discovered about sunspots so far? 
We discovered basically that uh, they, they have a signature be, below the, uh, the photosphere and then they rise towards the photosphere and then emerge to form this very large complex of sunspots and bringing us the activity of the sun. And these sunspots themselves can then lead to solar flares solar or other activity? Flare, solar activity and so on. But what is basically new in what I have presented is that we use a new satellite which has a very high time cadence, a very high spatial resolution. So we have been able to see the emergence of the sunspot at the very beginning. So at the beginning there was nothing and at some point you see the appearance of a strong magnetic field that will evolve in five or six hours in towards a sunspot configuration. And does this mean that we can now predict where a sunspot should turn up? And this enables us to use our existing satellites to watch closely at a certain area, see it emerging, and then confirm these theories? We can predict the formation of sunspots in the sense that we have seen this emergence eight hours before the sunspot actually form. We start with a very small, strong magnetic field growing into a sunspot in about eight hours. So we have the time to, let's say, predict the formation of a sunspot. What's the ultimate fate of a sunspot? How do they eventually dissipate? We have observed a sunspot dispersing the magnetic flux, let's say, in several rotations of the sun. So basically the uh, the area of the sunspot will expand so decreasing the flux locally and then disperse into the uh, the quiet sun region so as they expand the magnetic field strength just gets lower and lower until it can no longer sort of sustain the cooler dark spot. Yes, exactly. So the, the same spot is a really confined structure and then the dispersal of the flux will just uh, decrease the strength of the flux and increase the area of the magnetic field in order to, to have no sunspot and no activity. Stefan Rainier from the University of Central Lancashire. This is Naked Astronomy, and for the last 20 minutes of the show, we return to Carolyn, Andrew and Dominic to take on your science questions. First up, an email from Carl in the Philippines. He wants to know, why is it that the sun is yellow? So, the sun is a star, and it's made up of gas, mostly hydrogen, some helium and a tiny amount of other elements. And it's giving off colour in all wave bands, not just in the red through to the blue in the visible wave bands, but it's also giving off radio waves, infrared, ultraviolet, X-ray radiation, all beyond our normal optical waveband that we're used to. And a lot of that is actually absorbed by our atmosphere. So part of the reason behind the colour that the sun appears to us is the temperature of its surface, and that's around 5,800 degrees above absolute zero. And when you have something at that temperature, it glows mostly intensely in the yellow-green part of the spectrum. So if the sun was a lot cooler, say it was less than 3,000 degrees, it would appear a lot redder. If it was a lot hotter, so you're talking about 10,000 degrees or higher, it would appear much more bluey-white in colour. So the fact it's around 6,000 degrees gives its peak radiation in this yellow-green part of the spectrum. Now, 
There is another catch is that we are viewing it from Earth and that does affect what light makes it down to Earth. Not only do we lose the ultraviolet and the X-ray radiation from the sun, but there's another effect that our atmosphere does, which is it preferentially scatters the blue parts of the light from the sun. So this is where photons collide with particles in our atmosphere and it deflects the blue photons from the path they were traveling. I mean, this is what gives us the blue sky that we see. But this is effectively removing blue light from sunlight and we are left with more of the yellowy-red colors. And so that's why the sun appears yellow. Does this mean that for people on the International Space Station, for example, the sun looks much whiter than it does to us here on Earth. Yes, and that's true, that the sun from space appears a much whiter colour. Sticking with starlight, we've got one from Moshi Levy. I'll put this to you, Dominic. He wants to know how the spectra of different elements are actually discriminated in starlight. Obviously, we're seeing lots at the same time. So how do we pick out individual elements? Well, that's a fascinating subject. And I think the easiest way to answer this question is to talk about how spectroscopy was developed in the 19th century because it took astronomers almost 100 years to really get the hang of this. And it started at the beginning of the 19th century when developments in glass manufacturing meant you could start to make prisms that would split up the light of the sun with sufficient precision that you could pick out certain dark bands in the rainbow of light emitted by the sun where the sun doesn't produce any light at particular colours. And this was a real puzzle at the time, and people had no idea what was going on. And so Fraunhofer had to resort to just labelling these lines A, B, C, D, E, because he didn't know what was causing them. Now, it soon became quite clear that he was going to run out of letters if he carried on doing that, because as people made better and better prisms, they found more and more lines until they had many hundreds of them. And in the 1860s, Kirchhoff and Angstrom produced a catalogue of these lines with hundreds of entries. Now, in parallel with that, chemists were starting to apply spectroscopy to substances in the laboratory. They were burning substances in Bunsen burner flames and then looking at the light emitted in those flames. And what they found was that different substances emitted light at very specific colours. And moreover, they often lined up very precisely with where there were dark stripes in the spectrum of the sun. Now, that took quite a long time for people to really come to understand. This was work that Bunsen and Kirchhoff started in 1859, over 50 years after these lines had been identified in the spectrum of the sun. But what people started to understand was that this was a technique whereby you could compare substances in the laboratory with what the sun seemed to be made of. For example, sodium produces a very strong yellow line, which exactly matches one of the most prominent lines that Fraunhofer called the D-line in the solar spectrum. And so from that, you could guess that there was quite a lot of sodium in the atmosphere of the sun. But there were still more puzzles to come because this was only looking at the spectrum of the sun, Obviously, it would be really interesting to look at the spectra of many different stars, but stars are very faint. And as soon as you start splitting up their light into different colours, they become even fainter still. And it actually took amateur astronomers at the end of the 19th century to be courageous enough to build massive telescopes in their back gardens 
to split up the light of the brighter stars in the sky and see with the naked eye whether they could pick out the spectra of those stars. And that was William Huggins in this country and Angelo Secchi in Italy who did that. And also some lines, it turned out, didn't have corresponding features that could be found in laboratory samples. And the most famous example of that is helium, which was discovered in the sun because it's not a very abundant element on the Earth. And the technique that these people were pioneering in the 19th century is, broadly speaking, what we still do today. We look for colours which are missing in the light of stars. We note the wavelengths of those features. And then you go to laboratory samples and you try and find something that produces light at those wavelengths. And then you know this feature is caused by this material being present. So is it possible, as Moshi suggests, that you might get two elements that have overlapping features and the overlap happens to be the same as a third element. So is it possible that you could mistake things or mistakenly identify things in the spectrum? That was a real problem in the 19th century because people were often misidentifying features with elements that had features nearby but not quite at the same wavelength. And what generally happened was that as the spectroscopes got better, they were able to pick out the fact that these two features were ever so slightly different wavelengths and therefore they weren't the same substance and now you can get spectroscopes with really astonishingly high resolution and the chances of collisions between features has become quite small. Thanks Dominic. Andrew a question for you from Mark Dewar. He wants to know what gravitational waves you'd expect to see from something as enormous as the merger of two black holes. Well, we should perhaps start just by saying what gravitational waves are, Um, although we have talked about them before. um, They're they're sort of distortions in the fabric of space and time itself that are predicted by Einstein's theory of gravity. And they're called waves because they're very much like waves that we're more used to, like waves on the the surface of a, a pond where you see ripples where uh, the the ripple kind of slowly moves across the surface of the pond and it's not involving actually moving any water in that it's just a sort of pattern that that goes forward across the the surface of the pond and that's what gravitational waves are except they're instead of disturbances in the surface of a pond they're disturbances in, in space and time itself and there are various things that we think should uh emit gravitational waves we currently haven't detected them directly but we do have some indirect evidence that they are in fact there so if we go to this uh, black hole example if uh, black holes merge we do in fact expect to to get some gravitational waves coming out and the particular signal we get is actually very interesting because uh, Gravitational waves, um, like any other wave, have what we call a frequency. That's how fast, if you like, they're going up and down if you, if you watch them. Um, and they will be emitted by anyth- anything that's orbiting around something else. Uh, and the frequency will come out to be roughly the orbital rate. So if you imagine two things sort of going around each other, then a gravitational wave will be coming off that's rippling at about the same rate as, as they're going around each other. 
Now, those gravitational waves carry away some of the energy from the two things going round each other. So if you have two black holes in particular going round each other, they send out these gravitational waves. That carries away some of the energy. And as a result, the black holes start to spiral towards each other. They're always losing energy. They're getting closer and closer. And as they get closer, they actually start going round each other faster. It's, uh, it's a fairly simple result that you can get out of uh, Einstein's series of gravity. As they get closer, they spin round each other faster and faster. So the frequency of these waves goes up. And if you were to turn it uh, into sound, you would hear a noise that starts very low as they're a long way apart and going around each other quite slowly. And then as they get closer and closer together, it goes higher and higher. And in fact, it, it sort of gets higher at an increasing rate. So you get what we call a chirp, where the, uh, the gravitational wave uh, frequency goes up and up and up and right towards the end it gets extremely high indeed and then there's an actual point at which the event horizons of these black holes actually collide and beyond that we think there's uh, another phase we call the ring down phase which isn't quite as fun as this uh, chirp phase but um, gravitational waves from black hole merges because they're such a distinctive signal are in fact one of the first things that uh, direct gravitational wave observatories are trying to detect. So rather than seeing essentially a huge splash of gravitational waves when these black holes collide you'd actually see this very distinctive pattern where you have this the frequency going up a lot and then what would we expect to see in the ring down? Well, I think the ring down is quite hard to understand because it's to do with very detailed relativistic arguments about what happens to the, uh, the two event horizons as they merge. And in fact, uh, the best models we have of this use computer simulations to work out what we're actually going to see. But it's not that, that, that sort of splash moment, as you call it, is not so exciting. It just sort of decays away and is over pretty quickly. It's the, the chirp that comes before it that people are really excited about finding. And Carolyn, coming back to you, we've been asked uh, if black holes themselves rotate. This is a question from Melvin Perry. He said he's helping his son with his science project, so I hope you can help out. Well, I'm intrigued to know what the science project is, if it involves the study of rotating black holes, because that's what some of us here at the Institute of Astronomy are working on as well. OK, so, yes, black holes rotate. It would be very strange if they didn't, because they collapse down from a very massive star, it collapses down into gravity at the end of its life. And we know that massive stars rotate. And very early on in the podcast, Andrew mentioned the conservation of angular momentum. That means that the rotation of the object is only going to speed up as the core of the star shrinks. You know, it's just like the figure skater pulling in their arms if they're spinning. So spinning black holes are thought to be the most common. We call them Kerr black holes. And the rate of spin, we expect it to be thousands of times a second. So it's much faster than the neutron star pulsars that we record. And there are interesting complications if you have a spinning rather than a stationary black hole. We talked earlier again about Gravity Probe B, measuring how a spinning mass can drag space and time around it. You can imagine this is accentuated for a black hole around the Earth. In fact, there's this whole region just beyond the event horizon called the Ergo region, where it's impossible to stay at rest because space and time is being pulled around the black hole at intense speed. And there are other consequences in that you have energy stored in the rotation of the black hole. And we think tapping this is part of the reason that some of these black holes produce these really 
enormous jets of highly charged matter that gets accelerated out to nearly the speed of the light and they emerge from either side of the black hole. But the question is, this is what we expect to happen. How do we know, how do we test whether black holes are spinning or not? And the answer is with difficulty. This is really cutting edge astrophysics at the minute. And we think the rate at which a black hole spins is connected to the size of what we call the last stable orbit. So in other words, it's the point where matter can still orbit a black hole without actually moving inside and being consumed by the black hole. And that stuff is going to be very hot. It's naturally producing X-ray radiation. And so it's, we're now getting to the point where it's feasible to look at the X-ray radiation from material in this last stable orbit, measure where it is relative to the black hole, and therefore get a handle on how fast the black hole is spinning. And a lot of the next generation of X-ray telescopes are very interested in actually studying this in detail. Thank you, Carolyn. We have another question, this one from Felix Nielsen in Copenhagen. And he wants to know if two grains of sand separate in an empty universe would actually attract each other and then eventually collide. Well, the short answer is yes, um, but only if they actually started stationary relative to each other. So you can do the calculation. You assume that there are these two grains of sand. I, I'm sort of generously suggesting that they're about a gram each and you just put them in an empty universe and do the, the maths that will tell you uh, what happens next. And it does tell you they, they attract each other uh, because of gravitation. And um, according to my kind of rough uh, calculation, suppose you started them something like 10,000 kilometres apart, so that's a, that's a good distance, then uh, it would take them about the age of our own universe, so uh, sort of 10 billion years, that kind of length of time, in order just to uh, come together from, from that distance to actually colliding. But as I said, you'd, you'd need to start them off exactly stationary uh, relative to each other. If, for instance, they started travelling away from each other with a very tiny speed, then that would be enough to mean that gravity wouldn't be strong enough to uh, actually ever pull them back together again. In fact, in this case, the speed they'd need to overcome gravity would just be something like point zero 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 two miles per hour. You really wouldn't need much, and that just goes to reiterate this idea we have that gravity is actually extremely weak. It's a, it's a very weak force. One final question for this week. Dominic, this has come in from Scott Wilson, and he said that uh, he's had a question that no one he's heard has yet addressed. And he said, since Antarctica is so dry it's practically a desert and a bit cold, but it has a very high average elevation, why don't we put our telescopes down in Antarctica? Well, it's absolutely true that there are, on the face of it, some reasons why Antarctica would be a good place for a telescope. It is high up, so you're above most of the Earth's atmosphere. It's very dry because the air can't actually hold that much water. And also, you don't have a lot of turbulence in the atmosphere that causes the twinkling of stars because you don't have this daily temperature change between daytime and nighttime. It's not quite true to say that there aren't telescopes at the South Pole. There are infrared and there are microwave telescopes down there. Those are wavelengths which are particularly sensitive to water vapour because water actually absorbs microwave radiation and that's how microwave ovens make food hot. Um, 
But there have been a lot of technical challenges associated with getting those telescopes down there. One of the first problems is that you can't actually weld metal at the temperatures you have at the South Pole. So you either have to make your telescope elsewhere and then transport it in one big lump, but that's not possible, or you have to screw everything together with nuts and bolts. So I think the South Pole telescope actually has more nuts and bolts in it than any other telescope anywhere in the world, and it's essentially made out of Meccano. Another problem you have is that when you're working on a telescope, you want it to be at a nice temperature, say around 20 degrees Celsius. But when you open the dome and you're looking at the sky, it's going to cool down to the ambient temperature, which could be below minus 70 degrees C. So you've got a shift of getting on for 100 degrees C between your maintenance temperature and your operating temperature. And as different materials expand and contract at different rates, that can seriously warp the shape of your telescope components. And the other problem which I found really fascinating was that, of course, the South Pole is made of ice, and ice is a material that flows. And that means when you move your telescope around the sky, your foundations shift and you end up having no idea which direction you're looking in, and you have to just look at the sky and try and work out what you're looking at. So I think one of the main reasons why Antarctica hasn't been considered is simply the technical difficulties of getting a telescope down there. But for optical astronomy, there is the other issue, that it never actually gets very dark at the South Pole. In, let's say, Europe... The sun is high in the sky in the daytime, but that conversely means that it sinks a long way below the horizon in the night. Now, at the South Pole, because the sun never gets very high above the horizon in the day, it conversely never gets very far below the horizon at night. And that means you have very long periods of twilight. And there's actually only a period of one or perhaps two months in midwinter when it's really truly dark and you could do useful astronomical observation. That's all we have for this month's Naked Astronomy. Do join us next time for more space science news, interviews and answers to your questions. In the meantime, keep your comments and questions coming in by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. You can also follow The Naked Scientists on Twitter, that's at Naked Scientists, or join us on Facebook, that's thenakedscientists.com slash Facebook. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists, and it comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Thank you.